Welcome back to The Dirt Show. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, um, how come I haven't argued that many cases in the United States Supreme Court? I've argued about 250 cases in my pretty long career, starting in the mid-1960s, and I, I've won a lot of them. And, um, but I've only argued a handful of cases in the United States Supreme Court. I've done very well, um, and therefore lots of potential clients want to retain me uh, to argue cases in the Supreme Court, but I generally decline. Uh, a lot of people think it's a thrill to argue in front of the Supreme Court, and some people argue in front of the Supreme Court just because of the prestige of being able to argue in front of the justices. They give you a little quill, uh, and they treat you very well, and it's, you know, very, very, very honorific. I don't like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court for a very simple reason. The arguments in front of the United States Supreme Court don't matter. They're showtime. Uh, they're just for show. Uh, you think any lawyer could actually persuade uh, the current majority uh, not to limit uh, or even abolish abortion rights? Do you think that any lawyer, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Socrates, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, could change the minds of these uh, uh, five uh, justices? Do you think it could change their minds on, on the Second Amendment and, and guns or uh, affirmative action at Harvard? No, no, the justices have made up their mind. They make up their mind essentially when they decide to review the case. And um, then they generally decide to review. You need four justices to grant certiorari. Uh, knowing how the case is going to come out. It, it, on occasion, there are switches, uh, but they're generally not as a result of lawyers' arguments. They're generally as a result of arguments made within the Supreme Court itself, among the justices, among the law clerks. I would say of all the courts in the country, the Supreme Court is the court in which lawyers have the least influence. Um, I much prefer to argue in the courts of appeals or the district courts where lawyers' arguments can really have an impact. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen judges change their minds. Uh, why do they change their minds? Because most of the cases that I argue and others argue are not agenda-driven cases uh, like abortion, gun control, separation of church and state. They're not the kind of cases in which the judges have already made up their mind. Um, my cases generally involve people who are charged with a crime. There's evidence of, uh, of guilt. There may be some evidence of innocence. Uh, there may be legal issues, constitutional issues. Sure, uh, you want to know who the judges are, and the most important thing that I ever want to know about a case when I argue a case in front of the United States Court of Appeals is, who's the panel? Uh, when I'm arguing a case, say, on a Monday or a Tuesday, you don't learn who the panel is until the Thursday before. And then you scurry to the library or online and you read all of the judges' opinions. And depending on the panel, uh, you can sometimes anticipate the kind of questions that are going to be asked. Sometimes you can anticipate the result. Not always. I remember a case I had. I argued in Charleston, South Carolina. It was in front of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, a very conservative court. And I had three octogenarian Republicans on, on the panel. And I had a very difficult case. I was representing a member of some cult uh, in, 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 who was accused of, uh, this is going to be hard to believe, murder, rape, and trademark infringement. What? 
murder, rape, and trademark infringement. Yeah. He was an alleged cult leader who uh, allegedly, ultimately, the case was, was resolved, and I'll, I'll tell you how it was resolved. But uh, he was accused of uh, putting other people up to uh, the murder of somebody who was a, uh, uh, a competitor. Um, he was accused of having sex um, uh, improperly. And uh, his particular Hare Krishna group made money by selling at airports and other places hats uh, which had the logos of famous college teams, but they hadn't paid for the logos, so that was trademark infringement. And uh, these three octogenarian judges um, had no no agenda. I, I argued the case, and, and I won three to nothing. I got the conviction on the murder car charge and the other charges uh, reversed. Ultimately, a plea bargain was reached, and the case was resolved. But here you have three uh, old conservative Republican judges ruling in favor of some radical uh, cult leader, um, you can win. And, and I, with all due modesty, I do think my arguments had a lot to do with winning the case. Um, I was told not so long ago when I argued a case in Nevada that my argument prevailed and, and a woman who was sentenced to essentially life imprisonment, uh, went free. She was innocent and she's now living a happy life, married with children. And she calls me, uh, once a year or so to thank me. But that was also a relatively conservative court, but there was no agenda. Um, uh, on the other hand, the cases that I've argued in front of the United States Supreme Court, I've argued well. Um, I've won, I've lost. Uh, you know, um, in, in one case, I kind of lost, but then won. It was a death penalty, uh, double murder uh, case. Ultimately, we got the death penalty rescinded. Um, but... Uh, there was no, I don't think it had any impact on the outcome of the cases. Uh, the justices had uh, made up their mind when they voted for review. They had already agreed how to decide uh, the cases. And uh, I think we see that coming up now on the cases that are, that are before the court. The court has a number of incredibly important cases. Uh, do you think a lawyer is going to have any impact on how Roe versus Wade and its uh, sequela uh, are, are going to be decided? Of course not. The justices have made up their mind. The justices made up their mind on issues like that before they were ever confirmed to the court. They may have denied that, saying, I have an open mind, and precedent, precedent, precedent. But, uh, you know, they're really human beings. They come to the court with cases. It was said that Justice Douglas had a list uh, in his draw of outcomes that he wanted to achieve and of cases he wanted to overrule, and he would check off that list. Um, even Justice Goldberg, for whom I clerked, uh, came to the court with a desire to strike down as unconstitutional the death penalty. He had been a strong opponent of the death penalty for uh, since he was a kid. And the first case he asked me to work on, it literally just came to work the first day, he threw a brief at me and said, Alan, we're going to abolish the death penalty this year. And uh, he asked me to do a memorandum uh, calling for the abolition of the death penalty as a matter of constitutional law. I, I, I did it, and I worked on my memo. Uh, he allowed me to publish it. It's now been published, my memo, in my book, Shouting Fire. Um, but the point is, he, no lawyer was going to talk him out of it. No lawyer's argument was going to talk him out of it. So, you know, people love to watch Supreme Court arguments and hear the questions, but don't be fooled. These are show questions. These are uh, show appeals. Uh, the arguments don't matter. Occasionally, you're going to find a case where 
there is a technical or procedural or highly, highly specific issue that may really turn on the record of the case or on a, uh, a novel interpretation of the law, and a lawyer could have an impact on the outcome of that case. But I have to tell you, uh, the cases that uh, I've participated in, uh, I can only remember one. It was a relatively technical case uh, where uh, legal arguments may have had an outcome determinative um, impact. But I think the other cases, it was fun to argue. I spent a lot of time preparing uh, the argument. You might ask me the same thing about my defense of the Constitution on behalf of President Trump in front of the United States Senate. Do you think I had an impact on the outcome of the case? Um, you know, the senators mostly voted along party lines. Um, I was told that my argument, which was very constitutionally based, gave cover to Republicans to vote the way they wanted to vote. That if I hadn't argued effectively in front of the Senate, maybe a couple of Republicans would have been uh, scared away. But there wouldn't have been enough to have created a two-thirds vote for a removal of an impeached uh, president. Uh, I thought it was very important to argue that case on constitutional grounds in order to make sure that the constitutional power to impeach was not abused, as it was by the Democrats in the case. They created a new grounds for impeachment. The Constitution is as clear as could be. Treason, bribery, or other crimes and misdemeanors. Not only misdemeanors, and misdemeanors. Other crimes. When you say treason and bribery, and then you say other crimes, of course it has to be criminal type behavior. But the other side said no, and many law professors said no. And I said yes, and uh, my view prevailed. Uh, maybe it would have prevailed without me making the argument. You know, it's frustrating. We lawyers are an egotistical lot. We want to make a difference. Um, one of the reasons I chose a career as a professor is because I think I made a difference. Just last night, uh, a woman came over to me and said that uh, the class she took with me had a real impact on her life, and I get letters and calls like that all the time saying I changed careers. Look, I sat down and had lunch on the 50th anniversary of clerking in the Supreme Court um, with Justice Alito, the man whose opinion recently leaked, and he told me something shocking and made my day. He said I was the reason that he became a criminal lawyer. Remember, before he became a justice, he was a prosecutor. And I said, wow, why? He said he had read my book, The Best Defense, and also he saw me argue a case in front of the judge for whom he was clerking, and I wouldn't give up, and I just fought and fought and fought until I finally got him out of jail, and he said that that had a big impact on his decision to become a criminal lawyer, which means it had an impact on his decision to be a, a Supreme Court justice. Elena Kagan was my student. I don't know whether it had any impact on uh, her, her decisions or her life, but, um, you know, when you're when you're a teacher, uh, you do have impact on people. Uh, you're dealing with 21, 22-year-old kids law school um, who are open-minded. At least they used to be. Today, I think a lot of students come in with agendas. Uh, they know what the right thing is. They know what the wrong thing is. And they're politically correct. And they're either going to be uh, radicals, woke, uh, liberals. I don't even know what liberals are anymore. I'm one, but I hardly ever meet any others or conservative or libertarians, um, uh, much more so than when I was a student. When I was a student, most P 
people came with open minds. Sure, they were influenced by their parents, by their background, by their religion, but they had open minds about the law. Today, I think a lot of uh, young people know exactly how they want to interpret the law. Um, uh, take example, the same issues that we talked about in the Supreme Court. I'm not going to influence a 21-year-old woman's opinion on uh, abortion, uh, even if I show that Roe versus Wade may not have been based on the soundest judicial philosophy. It's not going to change her mind, likely, on whether there should be a constitutional right to abortion in the first trimester, the second trimester, etc. Those are issues I think you come to class with. But uh, as a lawyer, I would say 90% of the cases I deal with um, don't have uh, an agenda. Uh, I could either win or lose. And a lot of it will depend on how much work I do, how hard I work, um, how good my arguments are, how good my brief is. And so, um, you know, the Supreme Court increasingly has become partisan, ideological, political, result-oriented. And um, arguing in front of it is not what it used to be. Now, I'm not suggesting that back in the 19th century, lawyers really could have had an impact on Dred Scott or Plessy versus Ferguson or Marbury versus Madison. I think justices and judges, in, even back in those days, had a pretty good idea how they wanted to decide these major agenda-driven cases. Uh, but I think it's worse today. I think today, everybody knows when cases are being argued, basically how they're gonna come out. You may not know the details, you may not know the exact lineup, but when you have cases that are central to the political fortunes of one party or the other, you know how it's gonna come out. Uh, everybody basically knew how Bush versus Gore was gonna come out. It would be five Republicans uh, voting that Bush would be president, and four Democrats voting that Gore would be president. Um, oh, they all wrote things that made it sound like they were dealing with legalisms, but that, that was just uh, a cover. Um, the day the court decided to take the case, um, it was decided that it would be a five to four decision in, in favor of Bush, and it was. And uh, even though I don't think the arguments were particularly effective on, on, on Gore's side, Gore did not pick the right legal team to defend him, and he didn't defend his position aggressively enough. Um, uh, the, the Bush team outlawyered the Gore team uh, tremendously in every way, uh, at every stage, uh, not only in court but out of court. It was like taking candy from uh, a baby. In one instance, I was not representing Gore, but I was representing uh, the Democratic voters, uh, a group of them in Palm Beach County because of the butterfly ballot and because they, there had been some mess-ups and a lot of people voted for the wrong person. A lot of Jewish voters, for example, voted for Pat Buchanan, who was well known to be an anti-Semite. And of course, it was an accidental vote. And um, because of the way the ballots were misorganized against the law. Uh, and I pushed very hard to try to, to get Gore to litigate that case, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He just threw the towel and he gave up. Um, if we had won that case, he'd have been president because uh, there would have been many, many more than a thousand uh, votes that went to uh, Bush that would have gone to Gore. Um, it was a hard case because what do you do? Do you have a revote? You can't have a revote. Uh, you could, but it'd be very hard to get. But 
in any event, the uh, you know the 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 the, the case was uh, determined. Uh, the lawyers didn't have a big impact, although I think uh, the lawyers made it much more difficult for uh, Gore to win because they did essentially such a poor job. But um, you'd expect when a person's running for president, he'd, he'd have the ability to get good lawyers, to get good people to organize the legal team um, the way uh, the Republicans did with Baker in charge. He was a tiger. Uh, and, and the people on the uh, Gore team were pussycats. And, uh, you know, m maybe that was a good reason for, for Bush to be the, the president. Um, uh, Gore didn't show particular uh, brilliance in, uh, in appointing people to defend his own uh, presidency. But um, um, lawyers have different styles, different approaches. But the bottom line is, I don't think that um, any lawyers could have changed the outcome of Bush versus Gore. I don't think any lawyers could change the outcome of the abortion case. I don't think any lawyers can change the outcome of the New York gun case. I don't think any lawyers can change the outcome of the religious case involving prayer after football games. I don't think any lawyer could determine the outcome of the Harvard University uh, case, in which Harvard is being sued for discriminating against Asian American uh, applicants for admission. So uh, when you ask me why I don't argue in front of the Supreme Court, I like to have an impact. I like to know that my argument matters. I spend so much time working on my arguments. Uh, you know, when I do an appeal, I just barricade myself uh, in the office, turn off all the phones, and just study for a month. I've never been asked a question in hundreds of appeals. I've never been asked a question I wasn't prepared to answer. And um, because I know the record so much better. You can't win the case unless you know the record better than anyone else in the courtroom, especially the, the judges. And so you have to be very well prepared. And when I'm working on the preparation, I like to know I'm going to have an impact. So I probably will not argue any more cases in the front of the Supreme Court. I still have my quill pen. I keep that as a souvenir. Um, um, some of my family watched me argue. My double death penalty case in front of the Supreme Court, that was nice, that was thrilling. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, I have better things to do and um, better cases uh, on which I can have uh, an influence. Um, before we get to some questions, let me tell you about my wonderful sponsor, AnthemSoftware.com. Do you own a small business? and need help growing it, then AnthemSoftware.com is your one-stop solution. Anthem Software helps small businesses all over America find, serve, and keep more customers' profitability by providing world-class CRM software and results, focused market services. Your business will not only grow, but dominate in this highly competitive modern world. That's Anthem Security, AnthemSoftware.com. Every business has a song in AnthemSoftware.com helps you sing. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to schedule you a free demo of this amazing, amazing solution. So let's turn to some of um, the questions. I've uh, obviously had some controversial shows and people have some very, very strong views, although my views tend to be on the center liberal side of, of, of things. My uh, viewers and listeners, I think, tend to be more on the conservative side. And so Many of the letters represent uh, more conservative points of view than the one you hear from me on my, on my show. So here's one from Jefferson Ideal. 
It is likely the regressive left will eventually meet its demise in much the same way the McCarthyites did in the 1950s. I don't agree with that because you've heard what I've said. The McCarthyites were the old, the old guard. They were old people. They were the past, not the future, whereas the woke, progressive, hard left is the future. They're young people. They're going to be our future leaders in America. So I, I quarrel with the first sentence of this letter, but let's continue. They already have overreached their empty accusations against many of their own soft-hearted leftist academics. The next phase is witnessing these present-day sanctimonious witch hunters turning on each other like cannibalistic ideologues. I think you're right about that. Some of the victims of the hard-left, woke, cancel culture have been liberals, have been liberal professors, uh, professors who support their views, uh, but with somewhat more moderation. And that's the nature of extremists. They always turn on each other. And the enemies of woke progressives are the liberal left. Uh, the enemies of reactionary hard right regressives are conservatives at the center. Um, and that's why we, me, a, a liberal at the center, and you, many of you who are conservatives at the center, we have special obligations. I have a special obligation to turn on the woke progressives who are really regressives and to make it clear that my criticism comes from a liberal perspective, not a conservative perspective. This is not Fox News. Um, this is somebody who used to be on CNN before I was canceled by uh, CNN. And of course, I've been canceled uh, by many who generally would support me. I've been canceled by major Jewish organizations, the 92nd Street Y, Temple Emanuel, Ramah School. They uh, have shot themselves in the foot uh, repeatedly. So you're right, not only do extremists turn on each other, but uh, even moderates turn on each other. And, and the Jewish community has been leadership of the Jewish community has been particularly outrageous in, in canceling me and others like me um, uh, for reasons uh, that make uh, no sense whatsoever. So the next letter, fire all anti-American, socialist, communist, Marxist professors who unfortunately for Dershowitz are many of the same tribe. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to fire anybody. Uh, the answer to firing uh, moderates by the hard left is not to fire the hard left. Uh, let everybody compete in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, for me, the answer is not to suppress speech or to stop people from teaching, but to make sure that we have equity, equality. You know, we have all these offices that have been set up, diversity, inclusion, and equity, but they don't include, and they don't have equity. Uh, I'll give you a, a striking example from my own culture and background. These offices that are bloated bureaucracies that have, you know, 20, 30, 40 deans, assistant deans, administrators, etc., talking about inclusion, equity, and diversity only focus on usually one particular or two particular ethnic or other groups. Um, they're not interested in equality for Catholics or for fundamentalist Christians, uh, Protestants. They're not interested in equity and inclusion for Orthodox Jews or Zionists. They only want inclusion for them, inclusion for me, but not for thee. And so uh, we have a real problem uh, today on college campuses. Next one is very similar. Stop professors from espousing their political views on their students and threatening their grades for disagreeing with them. Now, I agree with that. I don't think any professor has the right to impose their views on students. Fifty years I taught, students did not know 
what my views were on any issues. In fact, if you ask students in my class what my views were on capital punishment, something I've had a passion about since I'm 12 years old, I'm strongly opposed to the death penalty, they would say either they didn't know, <clears throat> or I was unclear, or I favor the death penalty, because I would play the devil's advocate. I would make the students, most of whom were against the death penalty back in the day, uh, justify it, and they'd have to come up and beat down my arguments. And so my arguments were always on the other side. Uh, I love to say that when Ted Cruz came into my class as a first-year student, it relieved me of the obligation to be the devil's advocate, because there he was, the devil himself, when it comes to conservative points of view. He made every conservative argument you can possibly make, and he made them brilliantly. And so I didn't have to be the devil's advocate. He could speak for himself. I don't mean to suggest he was the devil, but from the devil's advocate point of view, he was, he believed it. I mean, he really, really accepted many of those views. I had to pretend that I was believing them in order to make it uh, a more interesting uh, and a more double-sided argument. So thank you, Ted. Thank you, Senator Cruz, for making my life easier as a teacher. Start firing politically correct Marxist indoctrinators masquerading as professors. No, don't fire them. Just make sure that they don't use their platform as a way of indoctrinating. Uh, teachers are not supposed to teach you what to think. They're supposed to teach you how to think. Of course, there's a difference in the sciences. Uh, in medical school, there are things you have to actually learn. Um, if you're going to be a surgeon, if you're going to be a cardiologist, there are rights and wrongs. Law is a little different. Now, of course, you have to know the Constitution, but you can take different views on the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. Um, and um, so um, indoctrination is not proper. And if I were a president of a school, thank God I'm not, um, uh, I would uh, make it clear that teachers are not authorized to use their podium, particularly when they're graders, and particularly when the classes are required classes, to propagandize students to their own point of view. Students always knew that if you fed back to me what I fed to the students in any way, if you tried to please me, I would give you a, a, a mediocre grade. That the, for the students to get the really good grades, you have to really disagree with me and beat me in, in my arguments, uh, whether they're authentic arguments or arguments I made in class. Those are the students that uh, I, I rewarded mostly. Okay. The last question. Um, if replacing Republican-American votes is not what the Biden administration is doing, then why on earth are they allowing an open border with all the human trafficking, drugs, terrorists, etc. to come in? Why do you say, what do you say is their purpose? It seems glaringly obvious they are doing this to increase their political power because they think those coming in will vote Democratic. You can call this replacement theory, or you can call this the action of power-hungry, powerful elites. Why not call it what it is? Do you see replacement theory as being different from taking away the Republican vote? Yes, I do. Replacement theory is the idea of racial purity. The people in, in Charlottesville who said Jews will not replace us as if Jews were of a different race than, than they are. Um, um, and it doesn't matter how you're going to vote. In fact, many uh, Latino uh, voters, uh, if they come into the United States, will probably uh, uh, vote um, Republican. 
And um, if uh, voters from Europe come from countries like Scandinavia, uh, they're likely to become socialists. Uh, it's not so easy to predict uh, what voting patterns will occur. Cubans have generally voted um, the Republican. Many Venezuelans have voted Republican. Mexicans, for the most part, and Puerto Ricans, they're Americans, of course, um, have um, generally voted Democrat. But there are exceptions to that, particularly within the Puerto Rican community. It's, you know, groups don't vote, individuals vote. Um, you know, when I was growing up, the Jewish community was all all Democrats. Um, today, there's a substantial number of Jewish Republicans. Um, but I don't believe that the Biden administration's immigration policy is designed to increase the number of uh, Democrats. I do believe that there are people out there who strongly believe in, in, in re replacement theory. They strongly believe that um, uh, the white uh, majority in this country will be outnumbered by people of color. They're not thinking about who, who's voting. They're not thinking about whether it helps Republicans or Democrats. They just want to see white Americans. They just don't want to see America uh, become a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic uh, country. This didn't begin now. It began with the Know Nothing Party. Uh, it began in the uh, beginning of the 20th century when people of my religion were limited in coming into the United States. There were too many Jews, too many Irish Americans, too many Italian Americans, too many Greek Americans, too many Asian Americans. Um, uh, that was the kind of racist um, uh, position that, that uh, so many took uh, during those periods of time. This is a continuation of that. Um, when immigration was at its peak, uh, it, it, it it split along Republican-Democratic lines. Asian-Americans didn't vote as a block, and uh, neither did Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans in big cities. They tended to vote Democrat because the machines were, were, were Democratic. It was a wasted vote to vote Republican. But in national elections, it was a little different. After the great wave of immigration, um, many uh, Republicans were elected. That's when, uh, you know, Hoover and Coolidge and and uh, Harding uh, were elected president. And then the reason Roosevelt was elected, I don't think had very much to do with immigration. It had to do with the Depression and, and, and for second and third terms with the New Deal. So, yeah, I, I do believe that uh, there are those who worry that um, whites will be replaced by people of color, and some of them include Jews as people of color. As I've said before, we're in the middle. Because um, African-Americans, most of them, regard us as, as white and therefore racist, some of them. Um, whereas the real racists regard Jews as something other than white. So I don't know what we are. We're just good Americans who've contributed a great deal to the welfare of this country and who love America and want to be regarded just as individual human beings. We want to live by Martin Luther King's dream that someday his children will be judged not by the color of their skin or by the nature of their religion, um, but by the quality of their character. See you tomorrow.